Welcome to the Publishers Podcast, your place for psychiatry soundbites. Hi, I'm John Shelton, publisher of the Journal of Clinical Psychiatry. In the next 30 minutes or so, I'll bring you up to date on selections from important peer-reviewed research and reviews from our November-December 2017 issue. You will hear a transition tone between summaries. Let's get started. Cognitive dysfunction is a core symptom dimension in bipolar disorder and is a strong predictor of disability and poor quality of life. Unfortunately, most conventional treatments for bipolar disorder do not improve cognitive symptoms and some may even worsen them. Cognitive remediation is a behavioral intervention aimed at directly improving cognitive functioning. This treatment has shown moderate, lasting effects on cognition in patients with schizophrenia and similar disorders. However, despite considerable overlap in cognitive symptoms among the psychotic disorders, cognitive remediation studies have been rarely applied to patients with bipolar disorder. With funding support from the National Institute of Mental Health, the authors of this study report the first randomized double-blind trial of neuroplasticity-based cognitive remediation in patients with bipolar disorder who have a history of psychosis. Compared to an active control group who received dose-matched computer-based tasks, patients receiving cognitive remediation significantly improved overall cognition and several specific cognitive domains. The study suggests that cognitive remediation can be beneficial to patients with bipolar disorder and can produce significant lasting cognitive change. The authors conclude that these findings support the extension of cognitive remediation to patients with bipolar disorder to address serious and often disabling cognitive symptoms. The findings may also raise the possibility of domain-specific cognitive gains based on training focus, a result that may guide the development of more targeted, individualized treatment. Given the efficacy of this web-based intervention, such treatments may be cost-effective and afford greater access than traditional clinic-based treatments. As the aging of our society progresses, psychopharmacologic treatment of behavioral and psychological symptoms of dementia poses a serious challenge. Placebo effects are large in patients with Alzheimer's disease. Placebo response is considered to be one of the main reasons for an increasing number of failed trials in the treatment of non-cognitive symptoms of Alzheimer's disease. Screening out potential placebo responders at an early stage is therefore critically important to optimize the design of future clinical trials. In this article, the authors examine placebo effects in a post-hoc analysis of data from the Clinical Antipsychotic Trials of Intervention Effectiveness for Alzheimer's Disease, known as KDAD, which was supported by the National Institute of Mental Health. In the parent KDAD study, 371 patients with Alzheimer's disease were randomly assigned to double-blind treatment with olanzapine, quetiapine, risperidone, or placebo. The secondary analysis focused on trajectories of change in brief psychiatric rating scale, or BPRS, total scores between placebo and active drug responders and the predictive performance of improvement at week 2 for response at week 8. 
No significant differences in symptom trajectories between placebo and active drug responders were found. The reduction in BPRS score at week 2 was significantly associated with placebo response at week 8. In addition, a 10% cutoff at week 2 showed the highest accuracy in predicting response rate at week 8. The authors conclude that symptom trajectories among responders, as assessed with the BPRS, follow the same pattern, irrespective of treatment received. The 10% improvement at week 2 was the most appropriate predictor of subsequent placebo response at week 8. This threshold may prove useful for the placebo lead-in phase to minimize trial failures of treatment for behavioral and psychological symptoms of dementia. Cannabis-related policies and laws have changed significantly over the past 20 years in the United States. In light of this, an important question to ask now is, how have these changes affected patterns of cannabis use? A recent study examined trends in past-year cannabis use and cannabis use disorders among youth in the United States, as well as factors associated with these trends. The authors of this article analyzed data from youth aged 12 to 17 years who participated in the 2002 to 2014 National Surveys on Drug Use and Health. They found that the prevalence of past-year cannabis use decreased from 15.8% in 2002 to 13.1% in 2014. During that same time, the prevalence of past-year cannabis use disorders decreased from 27% to 20.4% among youth cannabis users. The prevalence of past-year tobacco use and alcohol use also decreased, while past-year cannabis use increased among tobacco users and alcohol users. The study also found that compared to 2002, past-year cannabis use decreased among youth during 2005 to 2014, and past-year cannabis use disorder declined among youth users during 2013 to 2014. Declines in tobacco use were associated with declines in cannabis use during 2010 to 2014. These associations between declines in tobacco use and decreases in cannabis use suggest the importance of tobacco control and prevention among youth. Finally, the authors also report that past-year cannabis use and cannabis use disorders were higher among racial and ethnic minorities than among whites and were similar between male and female youth. Previous studies have reported a high prevalence of depression among patients with Autism Spectrum Disorder, or ASD, and have suggested a relationship between ASD and suicidality. To investigate this potential link, researchers from Taiwan utilized the Taiwan National Health Insurance Research Database to enroll over 5,000 adolescents and young adults with ASD. They analyzed the data to determine whether ASD increased the risk of attempted suicide independent of depression. Results showed that patients with ASD had a higher incidence of suicide attempts than those without ASD. 
Both adolescents and young adults with ASD were more likely to attempt suicide in later life, and ASD was an independent risk factor of subsequent attempted suicide, regardless of depression. In view of these findings, the authors remind clinicians to monitor suicide-related symptoms and psychopathology in patients with ASD. Although early treatment response in adults with acute mania is a good predictor of ultimate response and remission, clinically applicable predictors of treatment response and remission in adolescents with bipolar disorder are lacking. To address this gap, the authors of this study, with funding from Eli Lilly, investigated the predictive power of early response or non-response to the atypical antipsychotic olanzapine. They examined the responses of 161 adolescents with an acute or mixed episode of bipolar disorder at week 1 for ultimate response or non-response at week 3, as indicated by scores on the Young Mania Rating Scale, and for remission alongside other potential correlates. The authors found that the majority of symptoms improved early, and that early response to olanzapine in manic or mixed-episode adolescents significantly predicted ultimate response and remission. Furthermore, early response was the only consistent variable that correlated with ultimate outcome. It served as an independent moderator or predictor among all baseline demographic and illness characteristics, signifying the robustness and relevance of the findings. The authors conclude that these results strengthen the case for implementing an early improvement measure as a tool to predict treatment outcomes that can inform early treatment decision-making in clinical practice. Some new generation antidepressants are associated with an increased risk of seizure. However, the degree of risk varies widely among different studies. Researchers from Taiwan, with funding support from Taiwanese institutions, recently used a case crossover study design to estimate the relative risk of antidepressant-related seizure by comparing the rates of antidepressant exposure during case periods versus control periods. The effects of class and dose of antidepressant on seizure risk were also explored. The authors found that the seizure risk was highest for bupropion, with a 2.23-fold increase. SSRIs, SNRIs, and mirtazapine in descending order were associated with lower but still present risks. In addition, the seizure risk was highest among patients younger than 25 years of age. Based on these results, the authors recommend that clinicians bear these findings in mind and evaluate for potential risk of seizure associated with some antidepressants. Some research suggests that depression may be associated with decreased telomere length. However, much of this research has been conducted solely in white populations. Because there are known differences in both telomere length and the experience of depression among different ethnic and racial groups, the authors of this study examine the relationship between depression and telomere length in the context of ethnic and racial differences. The researchers use multiple linear regression to investigate this relationship in both a basic model, which was adjusted for age and gender only, and a fully adjusted model, which included covariates such as ethnicity, race, smoking history, and education. 
Their work received funding support from the National Institutes of Health, which incorporated data from the Dallas Heart Study. Results showed that no significant relationship existed between depression, as measured by the Quick Inventory of Depressive Symptomatology and Telomere Length in the full sample. However, the authors found a significant negative relationship between depression and telomere length among white individuals in both basic and fully adjusted models when the analysis was performed within ethnic and or racial subgroups. These findings suggest that ethnicity may be an important variable in the relationship between depression and telomere length. The authors conclude that future studies in this area should incorporate ethnicity and or race in their designs. In this pilot study sponsored by the National Institute of Mental Health, researchers tested the effect of an exercise intervention in young adults who showed early warning signs of psychosis. The participants completed three months of moderate to vigorous exercise under the supervision of a personal trainer using treadmills, stationary bikes, and elliptical machines. Along with improving the health of these young people, the researchers were interested in seeing whether exercise could help reduce symptoms of psychosis, improve cognition, and improve participants' ability to engage in things like school, work, friendships, and family relationships. Before and after the intervention, participants also completed a functional MRI scan to see if the exercise intervention could change the structure and connectivity of the hippocampus, an area important for memory, emotions, and stress. It is also an area susceptible to the healthy changes of exercise. The results show that the exercise intervention improved symptoms related to psychosis and cognition, and that the young adults were more engaged in their school, work, and social relationships. The authors also found that the participants' brain functioning had changed in terms of connectivity between the hippocampus and the occipital cortex. Unfortunately, there was little improvement in markers of physical health, like VO2 max. Lessons learned in this pilot study are being applied to an ongoing Phase two randomized controlled trial. Specifically, participants in this new trial will undergo high-intensity interval training. The researchers hope to extend the findings of the current study in order to develop a helpful exercise prescription for young people who show early warning signs of psychosis. Valbenazine has been approved for the treatment of tardive dyskinesia based on the results from several double-blind placebo-controlled trials. In CONNECT2 and CONNECT3, two trials sponsored by Neurocrine Biosciences, participants with schizophrenia, schizoaffective disorder or a mood disorder, and moderate or severe tardive dyskinesia received once-daily valbenazine, 40 mg, valbenazine, 80 mg, or placebo. These previous six-week studies demonstrated significant improvement in tardive dyskinesia symptoms compared to placebo. In the present study, the authors share the results from the extension phase of CONNECT3. All participants received 42 weeks of valbenazine treatment at 40 or 80 milligrams per day, followed by a four-week washout period. The primary objective was to evaluate the long-term safety and tolerability of valbenazine. No unexpected safety signals were found. 
Further, abnormal involuntary movement scale scores, along with clinician and patient-related global scales, indicated that participants experienced improvement in tardive dyskinesia throughout the 42-week treatment period. After four weeks of washout, however, it was apparent that some participants were returning to baseline levels of tardive dyskinesia symptoms. The authors conclude that valbenazine is an appropriate therapeutic option in patients with tardive dyskinesia who require long-term treatment. This article is freely available online. Please visit the November-December table of contents at psychiatrist.com. Cognitive impairment is a common, often persistent symptom of major depressive disorder or MDD that can keep your patients from achieving full functional recovery. But by using appropriate assessment tools and selecting treatments that address cognitive dysfunction, you can improve patients' functional outcomes. In this new CME Academic Highlights activity, supported with an educational grant from Decatur, Drs. Culpepper, Lamb, and McIntyre describe the burden associated with cognitive impairment in MDD as well as effective assessment and management strategies. They discuss cognitive impairment is a barrier to functional recovery in MDD, available screening, diagnostic, and symptom monitoring instruments, a new self-administered assessment tool that includes both subjective and objective measures of cognitive dysfunction and evidence for various pharmacologic and non-pharmacologic treatments such as antidepressants, cognitive behavioral therapy, and exercise. Read the full activity for a summary of their discussion complete with realistic case-based practice questions, useful clinical points, and hyperlinked resources and references. To read this academic highlights and take the CME post-test, please visit the November-December table of contents at psychiatrist.com. Early-onset bipolar disorder is a devastating illness with substantial lifetime morbidity. Some have argued that this disorder may have increased familiar risk. However, the genetic and molecular basis of this argument is poorly understood. To address this issue, the authors of this article, with funding from the Marriott Foundation and the Mayo Clinic, sought to perform a genetic risk score analysis of early-onset bipolar disorder. They selected eight single nucleotide polymorphisms, or SNPs, previously reported in genome-wide association studies to be associated with bipolar disorder. These eight SNPs map to three genes, CACNA1C, ANK3, and ODZ4. The eight candidate SNPs were genotyped in 69 patients from a prior study of childhood bipolar disorder, or the TEAM study, adult patients with early-onset or late-onset bipolar disorder, and healthy controls. The genetic risk score analysis revealed significant associations of the risk score with early-onset bipolar disorder. Gene-level haplotype analysis comparing patients from the team study with controls suggested that early-onset bipolar disorder was associated with a CACNA1C haplotype. At the level of individual SNPs, comparison of team cases with healthy controls provided nominally significant evidence for an association of SNP RS1084-8632 in CACNA1C with early-onset bipolar disorder. 
According to the authors, these preliminary analyses suggested previously identified bipolar risk loci, especially CAC, NA1C, have a role in early-onset bipolar disorder. In a recent study by Hahn and colleagues, the authors examined national trends in and correlates of the non-medical use of prescription stimulants, the frequency of such use, and stimulant use disorders among individuals aged 12 to 64 years. They analyzed data collected from participants in the 2003 to 2014 National Surveys on Drug Use and Health. The multivariable results showed that the national prevalence of non-medical use of prescription stimulants in 2003 to 2004 was higher than in 2007 to 2008 and was similar to that in 2009 to 2011, but was lower than in 2013 to 2014. Among those who used prescription stimulants non-medically, the frequency of use in 2003 to 2004 was lower than that in 2005 to 2006 and was similar to that in 2007 to 2014. The prevalence of prescription stimulant use disorders in 2003 to 2004 was higher than that in 2005 to 2010, but similar to that in 2011 to 2014. Among non-medical prescription stimulant users in 2013 to 2014, 53.2% reported that their most recent source of stimulants was relatives or friends and that they did not pay for them. Co-occurring substance use disorders were common among those with prescription stimulant non-medical use problems. The authors conclude that after adjusting for covariance, the prevalence of non-medical use of prescription stimulants in 2013 to 2014 was higher than that in 2003 to 2004. These results may help inform and target efforts to reduce prescription stimulant non-medical use, the frequency of use, and use disorders. Between 40% and 60% of patients with major depressive disorder also experience anxiety symptoms. The DSM-5 has now recognized the importance of these anxious features occurring within the context of depressive episodes with the addition of an anxious distress specifier. Recently, doctors Michael Thais, Richard Weisler, Maduka Trevetti, and Jay Sloan Manning met to discuss the anxious distress specifier. In this academic highlight section of JCP, supported with funding from Otsuka and Lundbeck, you can join the experts in conversation as they review the diagnostic criteria that make up the specifier. They examine the characteristics associated with the symptom profile, measurement-based methods for screening your patients, and current treatment strategies you can use in your practice. This Academic Highlights is freely available online, where the web version of the article includes interactive components to enhance your understanding of the material. Please visit the November-December Table of Contents at psychiatrist.com. Bipolar disorder is highly impairing, and many factors such as genes, life events, and nutrition are likely to contribute risk for the illness. However, these risk factors are not equally distributed among people or cultures. 
To learn more about these factors, researchers from the United States and Portugal conducted a meta-analysis to examine whether rates of bipolar disorder are different across the globe or have changed over time. The authors meta-analyzed prevalence rates for bipolar disorder from 85 epidemiologic studies representing 44 countries. Over 67,000 people with bipolar disorder and almost 10 million people in total were included. Ultimately, the findings do not suggest an increase in bipolar disorder over time, which is consistent with the previous meta-analysis in pediatric samples. Interestingly, prevalence rates varied greatly by geographic region. Rates from Africa and Asia were less than half the rates from North or South America. The authors found limited evidence that study design features significantly influence these rates, suggesting that other factors are at play. For example, Asian and African countries have lower prevalence of obesity and other risk factors, which may offer protection. The authors note that as globalization accelerates, the field must act rapidly if it hopes to determine what these protective factors are. Suicide prevention is predicated on accurate risk detection and quantification. A single program that can be used for screening, quantification, and monitoring of risk, and which enables more effective interventions while remaining feasible across settings, would be truly transformative. The aim of the Computerized Adaptive Test Suicide Scale, or CAT-SS, is to provide a major advance in achieving this goal. Using multidimensional item response theory-based computerized adaptive testing, the CAT-SS adaptively selects an optimal set of symptom items for each patient to measure their own suicidal severity. Individual severity is based on a much larger bank of items drawn from domains of depression, anxiety, and suicidality. In this study, which received funding support from the National Institute of Mental Health, the item bank contained over a thousand items related to depression, anxiety, and mania, including 11 suicide items. Data were analyzed using a bifactor model to identify a core dimension between suicidal ideation, depression, anxiety, and mania items. A computerized adaptive test was developed via simulation from the actual complete item responses in subjects from emergency departments at the University of Chicago and the University of Massachusetts. In a final sample of 290 patients, preliminary results indicated that from an Internet-based self-report lasting less than two minutes, the CAT-SS score reproduces suicide risk stratification based on trained clinician interviews that can take as long as an hour to administer. The authors recommend that the next step in this research is to administer the scale in heterogeneous populations and relate the results to the prediction of future suicidal behavior. Relative to adults, children with psychosis have significantly worse functional outcomes. However, very little research has been conducted on which factors are prognostic markers in these early-onset psychoses, especially which clinical characteristics may identify those who are less likely to respond to antipsychotic treatment. Researchers in the United Kingdom, supported with funding from the National Institute for Health Research and the UK Medical Research Council, conducted a longitudinal study in over 600 adolescents with first-onset psychosis. 
they were particularly interested in testing whether comorbid autism spectrum disorder, or ASD, was associated with antipsychotic treatment failure in early-onset psychosis. This idea for the association was based on recent evidence from adult samples showing that a history of childhood social impairments and other premorbid adjustment problems were associated with treatment refractory schizophrenia. The researchers identified an outcome of interest as multiple treatment failure, defined as the initiation of a third trial of a novel antipsychotic due to non-adherence, adverse effects, or insufficient response. Results show that in young people with psychosis, those who were duly affected with ASD had nearly twice the risk for multiple treatment failure. These findings highlight the diagnostic and treatment challenges that clinicians face when presented with children with ASD and psychotic symptoms. The results also emphasize the need for further work to identify reliable predictors of treatment response to investigate non-dopaminergic medications and adjunctive non-pharmacologic interventions, which may help those with additional neurodevelopment vulnerabilities and to reduce the heterogeneity of therapeutic antipsychotic response. This article is freely available online. Please visit the November-December Table of Contents at psychiatrist.com. Depression is a strikingly common condition in childbearing women with a period prevalence of 21.9% in the first year after birth. Screening for depression has been recommended by the United States Preventive Health Services Task Force for Adults, including childbearing women. In this randomized controlled trial, supported with funding from the National Institute of Mental Health, researchers assessed the impact of telephone delivered depression care management on symptom levels health service utilization, and function in 628 mothers. They assessed impact of care at 3, 6, and 12 months after birth. Women who screened positive for depression at 4 to 6 weeks postpartum were given psychiatric diagnostic interviews in their homes. Women with major depressive disorder and other diagnoses, except bipolar disorder or psychosis, were invited to enroll in a trial of telephone-delivered depression care management compared to enhanced usual care. The depression care management intervention consisted of clinicians who provided ongoing psychoeducational telephone contact to educate, assist with treatment decisions, monitor symptoms, facilitate access to services, and encourage links to community resources. Independent evaluators collected symptom, function, and health service use information at 3, 6, and 12 months postpartum. The authors found that the depressive symptom levels of women in both the telephone-based depression care management and the enhanced usual care groups improved by greater than 50% across the first postpartum year. Health service use was similar in women randomized to telephone-based depression care management compared to enhanced usual care. One consistent finding was that women who experienced childhood sexual abuse responded more favorably in the depression care management compared to the enhanced usual care condition on depression and functional measures. The authors conclude that regular telephone availability of a supportive clinician is a resource that appears to be particularly therapeutic to women who experience childhood sexual abuse. 
22Q11.2 deletion syndrome is a relatively common genetic syndrome, also known as DeGeorge syndrome and velocardiofacial syndrome. Among many other symptoms, patients with 22Q11.2 deletion syndrome have high rates of immunologic disorders and an increased risk of schizophrenia. This syndrome, therefore, presents an excellent opportunity to explore potential inflammatory processes in the pathways leading to schizophrenia. In this study supported by the National Institute of Mental Health, the authors compared the levels of several immune markers, such as C-reactive protein, in patients with 22Q11.2 deletion syndrome versus control participants, and in those with the syndrome who were and were not psychotic. The authors also examined the relationship between the immune markers and cognitive functioning. Results showed that compared to control participants, those with the syndrome had significantly higher levels of C-reactive protein, interleukin-6, interleukin-10, and tumor necrosis factor alpha. In addition, the psychotic patients had significantly higher levels of interleukin-6, as well as a higher ratio of interleukin-6 to interleukin-10, used to assess pro-inflammatory activity compared to participants who had the syndrome but who were not psychotic. Interleukin-6 was also associated with greater cognitive deficits in the patients. The authors note that their findings are similar to previous studies done in idiopathic schizophrenia and support the hypothesis that inflammatory mechanisms underlie the evolution of psychosis in 22Q11.2 deletion syndrome. The prevalence of autism spectrum disorder, or ASD, is considerably higher than might be expected in psychiatrically referred populations of youth. The burden of psychopathology is greater in these populations with ASD than in referred youth without ASD. Despite overwhelming evidence of significant psychopathology associated with ASD, the data on pharmacotherapy are limited. With funding in part from the National Institute of Mental Health, the authors of this study performed a retrospective audit of 54 clinical records to document the pattern of psychopharmacologic interventions and response in a psychiatrically referred sample of youth with ASD. These youth also suffered from multiple psychopathologies with a marked level of morbidity. The most prevalent group of psychopathology included attention deficit hyperactivity disorder, anxiety disorder, and major mood disorder. The psychopathology in the majority of youth with ASD, about 80%, required a combination therapy of, on average, three different pharmacologic agents. Pharmacotherapy was well tolerated and was associated with adverse events in half of the participants. Appreciable clinical response to pharmacotherapy was observed in more than half of the participants. The authors conclude that combined pharmacotherapy is required for managing complex psychopathology in psychiatrically referred youth with ASD. There is therefore a need for future research in order to guide treatment decisions in this unique population. Life expectancy in schizophrenia is 20 to 25 years shorter compared to the general population despite decades of progress in healthcare. Cardiovascular mortality largely contributes to this decreased life expectancy. 
It is now possible to reliably estimate cardiovascular risk through the non-invasive measurement of advanced glycation end products in the skin. Earlier studies show that levels of advanced glycation end products are elevated in chronic schizophrenia. To date, it is unknown whether levels of advanced glycation end products are already elevated in recent onset psychosis. Such elevation would indicate that cardiovascular risk is already increased at an early stage of the disorder. To examine whether this is the case, advanced glycation end product levels were measured by means of skin autofluorescence in over 100 patients suffering from recent onset psychosis, as well as in almost 300 healthy controls. In these young patients, who are on average 26 years old, levels of advanced glycation end products were already elevated by 15% after correction for age, gender, and smoking status. Such an increase would be expected to occur over 10 years of physiological aging. Traditional cardiovascular risk factors were not related to levels of advanced glycation end products, but duration of illness and of antipsychotic treatment, as well as cumulative exposure to antipsychotics, showed a significantly positive correlation to levels of advanced glycation end products. The findings from this independent study indicate that preventive treatment should be implemented earlier in order to reduce cardiovascular morbidity and mortality in psychotic disorders. Moreover, the results suggest that low-dose antipsychotic strategies might be beneficial for cardiovascular risk. Patients who are prescribed potent dopamine antagonist antipsychotic agents may develop acute extrapyramidal symptoms, or EPS. Anticholinergic medications such as bentropine are often used to treat EPS. In clinical practice, anticholinergic prescriptions continue to be refilled and, in fact, are associated with their own side effects, such as constipation, dry mouth, alert vision, and memory problems. In this quality improvement study, the authors addressed the need for these medications, especially long-term, and worked with patients to taper and discontinue anticholinergic medications. Researchers identified 29 patients in an outpatient psychiatric clinic who had DSM-4-TR schizophrenia, schizoaffective disorder, or bipolar disorders, and who were prescribed benztropine. Participants were screened for anticholinergic side effects by the treating psychiatrist and referred to an on-site clinical pharmacist for a comprehensive medication review. Initial and follow-up assessments were conducted over one to eight months to identify improvements in side effects and quality of life. Patients received from one to six medications with anticholinergic properties. Of the 29 patients, 19 were recommended for a medication change, with 13 having one or more anticholinergic medications discontinued and 6 having the dose decreased. A significant reduction in anticholinergic side effects and improvements in memory and quality of life were observed for the patients for whom a change was made. The authors conclude that this finding underscores the importance of reassessing the need for long-term anticholinergic medications in this patient population. Psychosis can occur during the postpartum period as a first incidence or isolated episode or as part of a chronic or episodic illness. 
Because psychosis is associated with suicide risk and potential risk to the infant, it is managed as a psychiatric emergency. Read the latest installment of the ASCP Corner to learn about the presentation and diagnosis of postpartum psychosis, as well as treatment and prevention strategies. This article is freely available online. Please visit the November-December table of contents at psychiatrist.com. The action of memantine on NMDA glutamatergic receptors, as well as other pharmacodynamic actions of the drug, suggests that it may benefit patients with schizophrenia. In fact, two meta-analyses have been done to examine this possibility. In this month's Clinical and Practical Psychopharmacology column, Dr. Andrade takes a close look at the individual trials included in the meta-analyses and discusses why it may be too premature to draw conclusions about the usefulness of memantine as an augmentation strategy. The full text of this column is freely available online. Please visit the November-December table of contents at psychiatrist.com. Insomnia isn't just a symptom in patients with psychiatric disorders. It is a comorbid condition that needs to be a separate focus of treatment. Do you know how to assess your patients for co-occurring insomnia disorder? Can you individualize treatment by considering cognitive behavioral therapy for insomnia and drug mechanisms of action? In these two See Me podcasts, supported by an educational grant from Merck, Drs. Benka and Bicey discuss four patient cases that illustrate how to recognize, diagnose, and treat co-occurring insomnia and mental illness in everyday clinical practice. Patient cases include a 32-year-old man with bipolar disorder who is experiencing psychiatric symptoms and poor sleep with little control over his sleep-wake schedule. A 27-year-old man with schizophrenia who is having auditory hallucinations as well as chronic issues with insomnia. A 57-year-old woman with a history of major depression who complains of increased insomnia over the past month and increased depressive symptoms over the past two weeks. And a 24-year-old woman who was sexually abused as a teenager. She is using marijuana and alcohol to cope with PTSD, significant insomnia, nightmares, and flashbacks. These podcasts are available on iTunes or just visit psychiatrist.com where you can listen to both podcasts and take the CME post-test. Just enter the keyword insomnia podcast. In closing, be sure to visit us online for interactive activities from our CME Institute and more from the November-December issue of the Journal of Clinical Psychiatry. You can view the table of contents on the JCP website at psychiatrist.com. Thanks for listening. This is John Shelton signing off. I hope you will join me next month for the Publishers Podcast, your place for psychiatry soundbites.